Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Eleni Jarkas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley this week, and here's what you need to know. A Pompeo push, the U.S. Secretary of State, is visiting regional allies as tensions with Iran rise. And a blanket ban, U.S. President Donald Trump is considering an all-out ban on 5G equipment out of China. And a golden gamble, El Dorado is betting $17 billion it can conquer Las Vegas with a Caesars takeover. It's Monday. This is First Move. Welcome. This is First Move. And of course, the week begins with a focus on Iran and the U.S. And new sanctions expected to be announced later on this week. We're going to be focusing on the G20 and a very important meeting between President Trump and, of course, Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's about trade. And that is what is going to be driving markets. And of course, we'll be taking you through every step of the way. So let's begin with a quick check to see how markets are going to be faring in the U.S. today. We're around 30 minutes away away from the start of trade in the U.S. and we've got futures pointing to a positive start. And remember, last week we had a really good close. S&P 500 posted record highs. The Dow Jones was flirting with a record close as well on Friday. Driving sentiment is central bank stimulus. Starting off with the European Central Bank last week and then we saw the Fed uh, also talking about potential rate cuts. So these markets are heavily overbought. That's the big concern. So if you get bad news uh, this week, that could threaten the rally. Right now, European stocks are trading mixed. Uh, and of course, in Asia, green across the board with Chinese stocks posting their sixth straight session of gains. All right, so a big one to watch this week, of course, is the Brent crude price uh, as well. That's going to be really important. I mean, oil prices rallying extensively last week. Brent crude was up 5%. You had the U.S. Food as well up 10%. It's the biggest jump in a week that we've seen in two and a half years. So if we see more trouble in the Gulf over month, uh, that could mean supply disruptions, and that of course could create a much higher oil price. But now with this uncertainty and of course very low interest rates, gold has been a real big favorite for investors. We've seen a jump firmly above that $1,400 an ounce mark. In fact, it's the highest that we've seen in six years. So, the President Trump taking a new shot at the Fed. He said on Twitter today that the strong gains in U.S. stocks this month could have been even higher if the U.S. had lower rates. So, he said, and we quote, think of what it could have been if the Fed had gotten it right. Thousands of points higher on the Dow and GDP in the fours or even fives. They stick like a stubborn child when we need rate cuts and easing to make up for what other countries are doing against us. Blew it, he says. We'll be chatting about that a little later in the show. But let's get straight into the drivers right now. And Iran is dismissing uh, what they say uh, are U.S. threats as propaganda. Trump is a major 
uh, of course, uh, is focusing quite a bit on the, the Iran uh, tensions right now. And of course, they've been talking about new sanctions against uh, the country. And he's offering a carrot as well as a stick. And remember, over the weekend, he was talking about obliteration or no war at all. So it's all or nothing. We've got Sam Kiley standing by for us uh, in Tehran to give us an update. Uh, Sam, I mean, look, it's a fluid situation and any miscalculation could take us down a very dangerous path. What is happening there right now? Well, Eleni, uh, it's a rather fascinating time in terms of U.S. diplomacy because clearly, uh, and I'd say this following an on-the-record briefing with uh, Brian Hunt, who is the uh, uh, Trump administration's envoy on uh, Iran, who has been traveling through the Middle East, as indeed is Mike Pompeo, who arrived in Saudi Arabia earlier today. He's due here in the United Arab Emirates a bit later on today. And what they're doing is trying to build or broaden the coalition of support for their stand against Iran at a time when uh, Britain, France, Germany, uh, the European Union, Russia, uh, China are still convinced that Iran must remain part of the Iran nuclear deal that the Americans walked away from under the Trump administration last year. And very tellingly today, uh, Mr. Hunt said that uh, he pointed out twice in this briefing that 60% of the oil consumed by Asia comes from the Gulf. It transits through mostly yeah. through the Straits of Hormuz, that very tight area uh, that is potentially threatened with closure by Iran. And he is looking now for a global solution, as he put it, to a global problem ahead of the G20 talks that's highly significant that in that the Asians, with the exception of India, appear to have been relying uh, on the United States to ensure the safe transit of oil through this yeah. region. Uh, India has sent a couple of warships, but I think that we're going to see increasing pressure on the Asian economies to contribute, perhaps troops, perhaps, I mean, uh, perhaps naval forces, certainly diplomatically to this uh, dispute that the uh, Americans are driving uh, with Iran. I think it's very important yeah. new development in the context of anxiety here in the Emirates that over the weekend things have, could have gone to outright conflict and that would have been worrying both physically and economically for the region. Eleni? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, from an economic perspective, there is a so-called war that is going on in Iran. Uh, and that's the reality. So any kind of sanctions, and of course, sanctions are already in place, are going to cause a lot more trouble and pain in the country. The question is, will new sanctions get Iranians to the negotiating table, or is it just going to amplify the problem further? What is your sense? Well, the Iranians have said today uh, that it's difficult to see what sanctions, new sanctions, can be imposed yeah. by the United States uh, because the sanctions are so heavy already. Bear in mind that their oil exports are down uh, to a fifth of what they were. Uh, and that was only after a brief increase following the nuclear agreement that lifted uh, most sanctions, or many sanctions, I should say, against Iran. But also the Americans are pointing out that Iran is 17 months away from an end to the arms embargo on it, from an end to traveling restrictions placed on General Soleimani, who is head of the Quds Force, seen as a very sinister force for destabilization by Iran's enemies in the Middle East, the United States and Israel. But I think at this stage, the Iranians are saying, we're not going to talk at all until there is a dialing down, certainly, of US sanctions. Indeed, they're saying the United States has to stick, rejoin uh, the nuclear agreement, the nuclear deal that they signed, 
uh, before any real diplomatic breakthrough can be made. The Americans hitting back saying, well, that deal wasn't a treaty. It wasn't legally yeah. binding. It was a bad deal and uh, they want to renegotiate it. They do have support in that, uh, particularly in Saudi Arabia, here in the Emirates and, of course, in Israel. Eleni? Thank you so much for that, Sam, uh, coming to us live from the Iranian capital. Uh, we're now shifting gears and uh, we're going to talk about uh, China trade wars with the U.S. Not made in China. That's the big push that we're seeing from uh, the Trump administration, wanting to get a complete ban on 5G equipment out of China. And that's going to be really interesting uh, to see how it plays out just days ahead of a really important meeting between the two leaders. We've got Christine Roman standing by for us. Christine, really not a good way. Uh, to get into negotiations about trying to sort things out and perhaps coming to an agreement when you're talking about a complete ban. I will say, though, for negotiations for the near term, you're absolutely right. This is a yeah. it is a new front in the trade war uh, with China. But for many years now, there have been serious concerns in multiple administrations about the reliance of technology from China on America's growing uh, telecommunications infrastructure. Right. I mean, this is the biggest the United States is the biggest telecom uh, equipment market yeah. uh, services and infrastructure in the world. Two hundred fifty billion dollars a year. And there are no major U.S manufacturers of cellular equipment. And what the White House is trying to look at here, it's, it's very early stages, according to the Wall Street Journal, at the beginning of, of its probe about its reliance on, on Chinese manufacturing for this very important uh, 5G technology. Uh, why is the biggest market in the world have none of its own players? And, and is it good for American national security um, to have the Chinese have such an important part of, of America's uh, communications infrastructure. So that's the backdrop here. Um, and the journal saying that, that what, what the White House is considering or investigating is whether um, they could require all 5G equipment to be made outside of China. That would require those big wireless, uh, the big companies that sell equipment to the U.S. wireless carriers to move their production out of China someplace else. So you're talking a, about a big potential supply chain disruption. And you're absolutely right. The timing is fascinating. The president of the United States and the president of China will meet face to face in Osaka at that G20. And we know that the president of the United States has said, you know, Huawei and China in general, its, it's high tech sector is um, a potential spying challenge for the United States. But he's also yeah. in the same breath said, but maybe that could be part of whatever kind of negotiation we get an overall trade deal. So it's not clear where all of this stands in trade negotiations. Yeah, and this is really interesting because it's more than just a traditional you know, trade agreement. It's about politics. It's about national security. It's about so much more. So I, I guess you know, we've been seeing the markets doing so well because it's an anticipation that you know, things are going to be rectified in some way or there's going to be some clarity. But when you look at the intricacies of this, it seems to be quite far away of any kind of resolution. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think what the United States is asking for is for China to change its yeah. business model. And China's business model is there to stay, right? And so you have uh, just really almost a, a collision of worldviews when you're talking about trade uh, with the United States. So what you hear from the, Chinese from the Chinese side of the table is that they want it to be equitable. They want the United States to give up as much as China gives up in any kind of trade negotiation. And that is not where this president stands. This president yeah. sees the United States have been giving up over and over and over again, and now it's time to, to rectify that. So the United States is what doesn't want to give up very much. So I just think it's going to be fascinating to see what comes, uh, what comes this weekend. I will say something, Elaine, that I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, and that is the markets and, and, and companies and supply people who run supply chains are starting to think that tariffs are permanent.
and uh, not just a bargaining chip anymore. Mm. And there's so much more that's happened as well. I mean, we've got the likes uh, of FedEx uh, not getting a, a, a parcel through uh, to a customer in the, in the United States, Huawei phone. And then you've also got concerns about the fact that the U.S. Commerce Department as well is banning Chinese companies from buying components here. So it's going to be an interesting one, Christine. Thank you so very much for that update. All right, so merger and acquisition activity and, of course, companies taking big bets. You've got Eldorado putting $17 billion on the table to buy out Caesars. Uh, and we've got Paula Monica standing by to give us an update on this. It's a mixture of cash and stock as well. When I look at the price-to-earnings ratios of both of these companies, they look really elevated. And that's what's really interesting about this. It's the timing, it's, it's the health of the U.S. economy, and it's just the sector that they're in, casino, gambling, and hospitality. What are you reading into this, uh, Paul? Yeah, clearly, Elena, this is a bet on the health of the U.S. consumer because yeah. most of these casinos that these two operate are in the United States, about 60 properties in 16 states. This is not a company that once they combine will have a big presence in Macau, for example, which has become such a new mecca for uh, gamblers around the world, obviously, particularly in Asia. This is primarily a U.S. company. This is a big win also for Carl Icahn. Icahn is the largest shareholder in Caesars. It was just a few months ago that he pressed Caesars for sale and got three board members affiliated with him onto uh, Caesar's board. So this is definitely something that Carl Icahn likes. He says he's pleased with the transaction. Yeah. I know, okay, then when I look at the premium, I mean, it's a 30% premium in terms of what we saw uh, Friday's close for Caesars. And at the end of the day, you know, people are quite worried about the health of the company. It's still, in a way, recovering from what we saw in the financial crisis. It accumulated a lot of debt. Uh, but at the same time, there's this optimism about what it can bring to the table down the line. I mean, are these fair prices that we're looking at right now, is this going to be a good return for investors? Yeah, I think uh, that's clearly what investors are hoping for when you look at um, you know how the stock is doing in pre-market trading. For Caesars, this is a company that has a storied brand name. They also own Harrah's as well. And it's interesting that Eldorado is the acquiring company, but Eldorado has no presence in Las Vegas. They're going to be assuming the Caesars name since that is the one that really has more global cachet. But again, Eleni, I'm very curious to see once these two combine, will they try and go after Las Vegas Sands and MGM and win the larger global casino companies and try and move more into Macau, for example, which has become such a new hot growth area for all of these gaming and casino companies. All right, great to have you on the show, Paul. Thank you so very much. Thank you. All right, let's take a look at other stories making headlines around the world and big news coming through uh, from Turkey. The opposition cabinet for a mayor of Istanbul is celebrating a landmark victory uh, in Sunday's re-run election. It's one of the biggest blows yet to Turkish President uh, Tayyip Erdogan uh, and breaking his party's hold over Turkey's largest city. So back in March, the president's party lost the original vote by a slim margin but challenged the result, claiming fraud and we're back to step one basically our Damon is standing by for us in Istanbul a big blow to Erdogan it's the largest city it's an economic hub in Turkey and of course it's also very symbolic you've got the Turkish lira performing really well today and markets are also up so I think the investor community is liking what they see but what's happening on the ground well Eleni 
for so many who wait to process throughout the course of yesterday and then after Imam Molu's win, this wasn't necessarily about which candidate was going to end up being mayor of Istanbul. For them, this was really about trying to safeguard Turkey's democracy. Those margins that you were talking about, back in March, the ruling government's candidate lost by that slim margin. That was 13,000 votes. Yesterday, he lost by more than 750,000 yeah. votes. That in and of itself is sending a very, very clear message. And during the course of the day when people were voting, uh, we spoke to people who had flown in from overseas to vote, people who were on vacation and cut that short to come back and vote, people who have the right to vote in Istanbul happened to be outside of the city. Also coming back, really, as they were saying, trying to ensure that their right to vote was what they were upholding. And we heard this in Ikram Imamoglu's victory speech as well, thanking everyone who came out, whether they came out to vote for him or not, for continuing to practice Turkey's tradition of democracy. Because for many within the opposition, when this re-vote was decided upon, they felt as if it was perhaps eroding at Turkey's democratic institutions. There were great concerns over that. But even after his party's candidate lost the vote, President Erdogan himself came out and acknowledged that this this is the national will of the people. He also acknowledged Turkey's democracy. Now, of course, there are going to be massive challenges moving ahead. Istanbul is uh, the country's financial heart. Ekrem Imamoglu is going to have to figure out a way to work with a city council that is still dominated by the AKP. He has already said that he's willing yeah. to reach out to the president. He wants to work together and across party lines. So for the moment, Turkey is viewing this as being not just a victory in a mayoral election, but a victory for Turkey's democracy as well. Thank you so very much, Awa Damon, uh, for us in Istanbul. And still ahead, low on diesel, another uh, profit warming, uh, warning coming through from uh, Daimler. Third in one year as it faces fallout from the diesel emissions scandal and still pursuing their goal. The USA women's football team makes a breakthrough in the battle for equal pay. Stay with us. This is First Move. to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Eleni Jokos and we still set for a higher open this morning. It's the last trading week of the first half of the year and what a ride it's been. I mean, S&P 500 is up more than 17% year to date and right now tech stocks are looking set for the strongest gains in early trading today. Last week, the Dow and the S&P both rose over 2%, the Nasdaq up uh, over 3%. So rate cut optimism is the driving force uh, here and all three indices have risen for three weeks straight and are on the track for their best June returns in years. Look at that. Right, joining me now with his take on the markets, we've got John Petridis. He is the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Point View Wealth Management. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you here. I mean, I'm just looking at what the S&P 500 is doing, and I'm juxtaposing that against that 10-year Treasury yield. Mm -hmm. And they're two opposing stories. The one is saying we're going to have fantastic, strong growth, a really good economy, and the other is saying fear, right. recessionary type environment. Where, where do you stand? Well, what a difference a year makes, right? Yeah. A year ago, we were looking at the 10-year rising above 3%, and now we're 100 basis points lower. And you can see this move in phases. So we started the year with the Fed really reversing course 
from saying they were going to raise rates two times to now it's how many times are they going to cut. And on the other side is they're still concerned with tariffs, right? So you had a bit of a fear trade there. But to me, this is all the, the, the mouth that you've seen here with the S&P 500 going up and the 10-year going down is a sign of massive quantitative easing happening globally once again. Yeah. And uh, the, the market is viewing that as a safety net, as a moral hazard really here to push people out the risk curve and invest in yeah. stocks. Okay, so we had President Trump saying that if we had rate cuts, we would have had an even better market. Over the last month, we would have had even more gains. I mean, but is this artificial gains? I mean, are these are these gains reflecting the fundamental environment? We've got earnings season that's coming up, and we've got to get back to reality because markets are heavily overbought, yeah. and that's a risk. That, that's my biggest concern: is that um, the market gets here as duped in the sense that valuations are rising, but we're expecting a negative two and a half percent growth year over year for earnings because we're still lapping yeah. the comps from the tax rate, right? So I'm very fearful with. Um, what we heard and seen on tariffs with China, that that could uh, throw some cold water uh, on earnings season, and uh, you may have some some sell-offs come July. Yeah, and it's interesting because markets are looking pretty good today for early trade, but yet we've got uh, U.S.-Iran tensions. We've got the you know the trade negotiations that are set to take place later this week. Are we just pricing in too much good news, and could we be setting ourselves up for disappointment? Clearly, you're seeing resiliency by the market, but I do think right now that has a lot to do with just pure quantitative easing. The fact that uh, the, the market is baking in, the Federal Reserve, by the way, has not cut interest rates yet, yeah. but the market showed pricing in they are. But also you're seeing on the European side, the ECB, right? The ECB yeah. said we'll, we will have to do more quantitative easing. And this, the state of the European Union was a big risk. And I think that's now being removed off the table because you have a floor. So if we start to see the economy coming under pressure here and you've got already a super accommodative uh, monetary policy situation, you've got no tools left mm. to fix you know, any kind of dramatic fall in, in the economy. I mean, what's the worst case scenario that could happen yeah. here? Because we're addicted to the stimulus, sure. aren't we? Sure. And I mean, and that's the reality right now. So I would push back a little on that. I think in the financial crisis, we, wrote, we rewrote the rules on the tools. Yeah. So the worst case scenario is a re reboot of Lehman Brothers, where the credit markets dry up entirely. And we don't see that at all happening anywhere. I mean, the banks are flush with capital. The stress tests are coming out, right? We know that there is a massive capital. And if there is, the, the central banks are willing and able to stuff more capital into the banking system. So you're right, it's a moral hazard. And the fact is that the, the, the market is viewing uh, central banks as the safety net here. And yeah. people are just getting pushed out the, the risk curve saying, well, I always have central banks to bail me out if need be. And right now we're not seeing excess in the system. Yeah. You know, outside of Bitcoin getting a bit of a bit here, it's not like valuations are stretched. It's not like we have a buzz bubble in the housing market. You know, the, the biggest longer term risk is the amount of debt the U.S. has on its balance sheet of $21 trillion and growing. You know, w what happens then? But that's the Armageddon situation. But we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. I mean, and, and the thing is now we're just going to focus on earnings that are going to be yeah. coming through because that's also going to be a really good barometer to understand, firstly, how, you know, trade war is impacting sales and then, of course, just generally how healthy these companies are that have been rallying so dramatically. Here's my biggest concern out of the Fed meeting that Powell said. He said business spending looks soft. And you yeah. saw a lot of CEOs come out very vocal against President Trump um, on increasing tariffs. So what that means to me is CEOs are concerned, they're, they're uncertain about the future, so they don't want to commit capital, right? And or they can't pass through the rising costs and tariffs to pricing to their end consumers. So it's, it could hurt their earnings growth. So th those to me are why we're seeing this market rally of why I'm concerned going to earnings season. Okay. Well,
bullish or are you feeling pessimistic? Are you worried? So short term, like the next month, I'm probably a little bit more nervous. But any sell-off in the market come any season in July, I'm a, I'm a huge bull because, again, I do believe that the Fed has pushed it. Where are you going to go? You know, yeah. the U.S. 10 years at 2%. Cash is earning you not much and is, is an option. So you forced out in stocks. John Petridis, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really good to have you on. And after the break, uh, opening bell here in New York. Stay with us. First move, I'm Eleni Jokas, live from the New York Stock Exchange, and that was the opening bell. And we've got a higher open across the board for U.S. stocks as we enter a very busy news period for investors. Um, only just in the green, but it's a positive start. And of course, if this is anything to go by, markets are expecting good news this week. And it hinges on the meeting between U.S. President Trump and Chinese President Xi. Remember, Trump has threatened to slap tariffs on some $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. And of course, uh, if progress isn't made, that's going to be quite uh, bad for market uh, sentiments towards the end of the week. In the meantime, Fed Chair Jerome Powell delivers a speech on the economy tomorrow. That's going to be really telling about the Fed's next move. And we also get quarterly results from FedEx, Nike and chip maker Micron. Earnings will be an important barometer for the health of the economy and updates uh, on the impact of the U.S.-China trade war, of course. There's also going to be something they'll be looking at as these earnings trickle in. So global movers right now, Caesars Entertainment shares are up, while casino operator Eldorado Resort shares are down. Eldorado is buying Caesars for more than $17 billion. It creates America's largest casino business, and the combined company will keep the name Caesars. Uh, shares will continue trading on the Nasdaq. I mean, look at that. Caesars up almost 5% in early trade and Eldorado uh, down just over 9%. Spotify, in the meantime, is down. Evercore uh, is uh, downgraded, uh, downgraded rather, Spotify from inline to underperform. It cut its price target from $125 to $110. Evercore cannot see how Spotify profits can match Wall Street's estimates. So, Spotify down. 2%. Now, the U.S. Secretary of State is in the Middle East and aiming to build a global alliance against Iran. Mike Pompeo just left Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, after meeting with King Salman. Uh, the trip comes as tensions between Washington and Tehran are at new highs. U.S. President Donald Trump is threatening to hit Iran with more sanctions. DJ Peterson is president of Longview Global Advisors, which offers analysis on how political, social and economic trends can impact businesses. He now joins me from Los Angeles. Really good to have you. More sanctions against Iran and I guess with a hope to bring them to the negotiating table. In the meantime, Iran is dragging its feet. It's saying that it's just propaganda. They're not going to buckle to these threats. Um, I guess with an outside view, you've got to think if we see more tension in this region, it's going to be bad news. You know, for oil prices, it's going to be good news. But at the end of the day, it's just more instability and more uncertainty. Yes, I think the threat of sanctions is uh, nothing new to Tehran right now. I think they're uh, already considering themselves at war with Washington, so sanctions probably will not bring them to the table at this point. They've seen the United States back out of the nuclear deal. Um, and so what kind of deal would be uh, uh, appropriate and what would stick from the uh, Tehran side? 
I don't see a, a deal. I don't see them coming, bringing them back to the table at yeah. this point. They've been under sanctions for many, many years. The situation fundamentally isn't going to change their position. And DJ, I mean, we heard President Trump saying no preconditions involved. Come and let's speak. What do you make of these comments? Because obviously there are preconditions in a way. I mean, we know uranium enrichment is a no-no. They want them to abandon their nuclear program. Right. Well, the preconditions um, from the uh, from Tehran's perspective are the new sanctions, for instance, that are being threatened and the increased um, military presence that the United States is beefing up in the Middle East. So there are already preconditions in place right now. They want the United States to come back to the negotiating table or actually come back to the table and rejoin the nuclear deal. That's the, that's the conditions on the table from Tehran's perspective. They see themselves as already at the table with that. They've been there for years. They've seen the United States walk away. So the, they are in a fundamentally have a different view than what Washington is saying. Let's look at the economic sanctions currently in place. We know that there are sanctions against a thousand firms uh, in Iran, and the reality is that it's actually squeezing the poorest of the poor as well. And, and I guess it's, it's an economic war in itself. Uh, the question is, when is the Iranian government going to say, well, we cannot uh, allow this to happen to our civilians? Because at the end of the day, civilians are, are impacted by sanctions on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is what, I guess, the U.S. also needs to think about, because it has been saying, at least over the last few days, that it wants to have minimal impact on civilians in that country. Well, if you look back through history, the, Iran has essentially been at war with the United States for 40 years. And we've had sanctions for many years, um, and they've tightened. Um, so the idea that this is something new, or that this is going to fundamentally change the calculus in Tehran among the leadership, it's probably not going to happen. In fact, the leadership right now, from a domestic perspective, domestic Iranian perspective, does not want to be seen as cowing or bowing down to Washington yeah. at this point. Standing firm is what is important. and. The, the regime has significant popular support, especially in these conditions when there's an external threat. So right now there is very little political incentive to do anything except stand firm in Tehran. Yeah, and the U.S. also wants to stand firm as well. Show of force, it seems, that we're seeing from both sides. And I guess embroiled in the middle of this is just the global geopolitical situation, which could have uh, quite a detrimental impact if things aren't, uh, you know, sorted out, at least in the next, you know, while, in the short term. Uh, what is your reading of this about how it's going to impact the overall uh, sentiment and, and risk profile of global economics? Because that uh, the Gulf of Oman is really important in terms of transferring goods, especially oil, to the rest of the world. Right. That's a great question. And what you see is a, a very interesting situation right now in the world where you have significant easing and liquidity being generated by central banks and certainly the United States counteracting against geopolitical risks such as Tehran and the Iran issue and, and concerns about oil passing through the Straits of Hormuz. So it's very difficult right now actually to tease out what are the implications or what, where is our geopolitical risks having an effect on the markets. I think one way to look at it is, is the risk of a more of a black swan event 
if Iran, if Tehran makes a move to more significantly cut off or threaten supplies that are going through the straits, clearly the United States would not stand for it. They stand for freedom of navigation and uh, the movement of oil. So you might see short-term blips caused by movements or signals by uh, Iran, but it's probably unlikely that they're going to be able to close off oil supplies over the longer term without significant U.S. retaliation. But that's a black swan scenario, and it's very difficult to predict. DJ, we've seen oil prices rally on the back of this. Just how much bad news has been priced into Brent crude? It's, I think it's about priced in as much as possible right now. I think it's very clear that uh, from, from Tehran's perspective that they do not want war at this point. They see the United States very trigger happy right now. The president of the U.S. Yeah. just said that the other day. So Iran and, and, and the regime in Tehran does not want to have an all-out conflict with the United States. So for them to take significant further actions to threaten yeah. oil flows to the global markets is probably unlikely at this point. Thank you so much for your uh, insights, DJ. Great to have you on the show, uh, DJ Peterson, in Los Angeles for us. Now, Malaysia's Prime Minister says he is frightened by the tensions between Iran and the U.S. He also criticized President Trump as erratic over his handling of the trade dispute with China. Mahathir bin Mohammed was speaking to our John Defterios, who joins me now from the Malaysian capital, Kuala Lumpur. Great to have you on the show, John. And, you know, we keep talking about this. Emerging markets Thanks, are Elaine. always stuck in the middle of trade wars or any kind of big issues that you see between global powers. And that's exactly what, uh, you know, Malaysia is experiencing right now. It's complicated because we're here for the uh, Asian Oil and Gas Conference and you have about 2,000 CEOs trying to play the both long and short game. The long game is trying to invest about a half a trillion dollars a year in oil and gas and trying to predict demand in the future. The short game uh, are the shocks that are taking place right now, uh, the U.S.-China trade war, uh, and also what could happen in Iran and supplies coming out of the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia was blunt on both accounts. Let's start with Iran and his fears of conflict going forward. Let's take a listen. This may trigger another war and any wars now fought will involve the whole world because we cannot escape from being dragged in into conflicts and it is not going to be good. It can be worse than the last war because now we have nuclear weapons. So I'm frightened. Well, the Iranians seem to be digging in their heels, uh, particularly the hardliners suggesting that they had a nuclear agreement and they don't think they should be that flexible with the Trump administration. So the art of diplomacy seems to be gone. The Iranians will fight for their country. This is not a young nation. It is a civilization that preceded Western civilization. And they have survived all this time. And I think they don't want to be wiped out. They will fight. It won't lead to regime change in Iran, this strategy by the Trump administration? I don't think so. I don't think they are very determined. Not just a few people, but the vast majority. The other major economic issue today is the trade war between the U.S. Uh, and China. If I read it correctly, President Xi seems determined to go to the very end, and he's not up for re-election. How do you find a settlement between the number one and number two economies at this stage? This is getting us nowhere. But you cannot expect China to just count out 
to the pressures applied by the U.S., they had their pride and they believe in their own strength. And uh, if uh, the pressure is uh, very great, they will retaliate, they will fight back. I don't think China is going to surrender just because of a trade war. Do you think you can see a breakthrough this weekend in Osaka? Or what are your expectations? I'm not so hopeful. Unfortunately, uh, America has a, a president who is uh, uh, determined but erratic. Determined but erratic, you're saying? Yeah. Is Huawei really the security threat that the U.S. administration is suggesting today? Maybe uh, America is worried that Huawei might be spying into their new technologies. But for other countries, they don't have any new technology beyond Huawei, so they are not frightened. I think if we react in this way by uh, taking action against companies, I think uh, this can be very bad for other companies as well. Mahathir Mohammed, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, is talking about contagion, Eleni, to other companies. How about contagion to the energy market? One chairman of a consultancy told me today uh, their forecast, if the trade war continues, is demand today around 1.3, 1.4 million barrels a day, dropping by about 30% in 2020. Now, that would be a shock to the energy market and really kill prices from the $65 a barrel we're witnessing today. Back to you. All right, John, thank you so very much for that update. John Defterios in Kuala Lumpur for us. Up next, the diesel emissions scandal continues to pollute Daimler's profits. The German car maker slashes its outlook for the third time in a year. to first move. Now, shares in German automaker Daimler are down more than 3% after the third profit warning in a year. Now, the carmaker said it was setting aside hundreds of millions of euros to deal with the diesel emissions crackdown. We've got Peter valdez Pina joining me now. Peter, you know, when you're seeing a revision of earnings down constantly happening, uh, you know, three times in a year, it just goes to show that the company is not really sure, at least doesn't have a handle on how uh, deep the problem is with the uh, diesel's emissions uh, scandal that played out a few years ago. Is this the last of the bad news? You know, is that the sense that the company is giving us right now? Well, of course. There's no way to know that yet. It's, as you said, three times so far this year. Could be more. Uh, the company said this time it's setting aside triple-digit millions of euros to deal, with, uh, to deal with this issue in the future. And so we don't know. Apparently, uh, this is something that could, that could go on. We hope that the company's finally got a handle on this with its new CEO and that this will be the end of it. But who knows? Yeah, and, and Peter, this isn't the only thing that the company is worried about. At the end of the day, it's got to spend a lot of money on moving into new technologies, self-driving cars, and of course, just cleaner uh, technology as well. So it's a tough time for this automaker. Uh, but if you juxtapose it against other players in the market, it's not like everyone is having a good time right now. No, certainly. Well, first of all, the things you just mentioned, every automaker is having to deal with that. Uh, Volkswagen, a uh, close competitor, is, is dealing very, going very heavily uh, into electric cars and partnering with Ford on autonomous vehicles, possibly. So everybody's having to deal with those pressures. Plus, all the German automakers, BMW and Volkswagen as well, have to deal with these, uh, with these diesel issues. Uh, diesel has been a big part of the European market for a long time. 
uh, besides the scandal, new regulations are also shifting the market, not just towards electric, but away from diesel. And automakers like Jaguar uh, have had some financial pain from that. So it's a very difficult time for the industry on two fronts at once, not just the diesel scandal, but also regulatory pressures and market pressures yeah. forcing them to invest in new technologies. Yeah. And this is going to be interesting. Are we going to see consolidation? Are we going to see companies, uh, you know, shrinking their operations, cutting jobs? And maybe we might even see some M&A activity where, you know, companies just want to get rid of, of divisions that are not performing well. Right. Well, we've seen some of that already. Recently, we heard uh, what Fiat Chrysler and Renault talking about a uh, possible merger that got scuttled for internal politics reasons, apparently, uh, at uh, at the Renault-Nissan uh, Renault alliance. But we're also seeing other automakers, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Ford and Volkswagen have been talking about working together and making some deals to work together. And yes, automakers like Fiat Chrysler are also shedding divisions that they think are, well, not working for them in the current environment while they look to spend more money on those new technologies that I that I talked about earlier. Yeah. All right, Peter, thank you very much for that update. Peter Valdez, the peanut, thank you. All right, so still to come on Target, the American women's football team make a breakthrough in their fight for equal pay. Welcome back. Here's today's boardroom brief. FedEx is apologizing for another mistake with Huawei delivery. The company confirmed Sunday it returned a package from Huawei bound for the United States due to an operational error. FedEx confirming the U.S. putting Huawei on a blacklist was not a factor. This has only reignited China's anger. State media suggests FedEx will likely end up on the country's unreliable entities list. Coca-Cola has extended its sponsorship of the Olympic Games through the next decade. It has teamed up with China Mangnui Dairy to sign a major deal with organizers reported to be worth $3 billion. It comes as the host city of the 2026 Winter Olympics is to be announced in the next few hours. Now, in women's football, Team USA have reached a crucial stage in their fight both on and off the pitch as they prepare to take on Spain and the knockout stages of the World Cup there's also been a major development for their bid for equal pay we've got Andy Scholes uh, with that update Andy it's 2019 and we're still talking about equal pay regarding sports why yeah well Elena you know 28 members of the US women's national team they did file a pay discrimination lawsuit back in March and they have now reached a tentative agreement with the US Soccer Federation to go to mediation. Now, the players are suing for wages and playing conditions more in line with the men's national team. And a spokeswoman for the players are responding to the mediation agreement saying, we hope their pledge to submit a proposal to solve the ongoing gender disparities is genuine. The world is watching. Now, the U.S. Soccer Federation told the Washington Post that they welcome the opportunity to mediate after the World Cup and that they were disappointed that this news was shared while the tournament was going on as it would could create a distraction for the players. Well, the players, meanwhile, say there is no distraction and they can handle their business on and off the field. Bring it on. You know, we're not listening to any of the noise. Uh, we're here to win and we're here to do a job and do it well. And, um, you know, you work your entire life for this moment. So nothing is going to get in the way of that. Now, the U.S. Soccer Federation originally responded to the lawsuit, arguing that the men's and women's national teams 
They're physically and functionally separate organizations that perform services for U.S. soccer in physically separate spaces and compete in different competitions, venues, and countries at different times. Now, they went on to say the teams have separate collective bargaining agreements and have separate budgets that take into account the different revenue that teams generate. And the key word there is revenue. The U.S. Soccer Federation in May of 2016 said men's games generated about $144 million from 2008 to 2015, while women's matches generated $53 million. And the revenue gap in the World Cup is a big reason. This year, the women's champion will win $4 million of a $30 million prize pool. France, meanwhile, just brought home $38 million for winning the Men's World Cup last year, and that prize pool was $400 million. So, you know, there's no dispute that is disputing that, you know, the U.S. women's team is more successful and has more stars with name recognition than their men counterparts. But, Eleni, there's also no disputing that there's just much more money in men's soccer. Andy, we're going to have to pick this up again. It's a, it's a deep conversation that needs to be had. Thank you so very much uh, for that update. Well, that's it for First Move. Uh, thanks so very much for watching. Um, let's take a quick look to see how the markets are faring right now. Dow Jones is up almost a quarter of a percent. S&P 500 uh, flat with a downside bias. And Nasdaq also sitting slightly in the red. Remember, markets uh, did really well last week. We've got big news flow uh, this week. U.S.-Iran trade uh, tensions between China as well. There's just so much happening on the agenda. Uh, markets are on edge perhaps, but Dow Jones looking good uh, for now. Also a spate of earnings that we're expecting uh, later on this week. So the iDesk with Robin Kerno starts right after this. I'm Eleni Jarkas. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.